Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 153. In this episode, we're talking about limits with Dr. Kelly Capick. Dr. Capick is Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College in Georgia in the States. He's the author of many books, including the book we're talking with him on today's episode, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, published by Brazos Press in 2022. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Madison Pierce, Reverend Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Sydney Tooth, and myself, Stephanie Kate Judd. Well, guys, I really enjoyed that conversation. I don't know about you, but I have found uh, Kelly's work on limits really helpful in my own life. And this conversation was a reflection of that. How did you guys find the conversation? I really think that Kelly's work is so um, so needed and fascinating. I love the thought of us having more conversations about our limits and um, just recognizing our even our own particularity um, and how that kind of plays out. So um, there's a lot of health and goodness, and um, I'm really grateful for. I mean, the I think I feel like the reception of this project has been really good, and I hope that means that we have healthier communities ahead of us. I just so appreciated Kelly's focus on humility and and how our dependence on one another plays into that. And I think it's it's so refreshing, um, especially for a lot of us in cultures where we're, we try to be self-reliant and we're often modeled self-reliance to just really think through how Christ's humanity and his humility and taking on humanity um, challenges us and, and helps us think about how we're interacting with each other and, and and how how to model that well to each other and encourage one another and um yeah it's it was a really refreshing conversation and I really appreciated um, going through that with him yeah I really appreciated Kelly's uh engagement with a broad cross-section of uh theology uh discipleship his interest in in New Testament studies uh as well as that uh great concern for the church that he has and for people within the church, uh, being able to see them flourish and uh, see them grow in, in all sorts of different areas. And so I, I really appreciate the way that he is able to integrate all of those together uh, and to be able to work with that. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Kelly Capick. Well, Kelly, it's so fantastic to have you on the pod with us. Oh, thank you. This is a delight to be with you guys. Kelly, you've written a book um, all about limits. Can you tell us a bit about what led you to write this book? Yeah, it's great. It, it's great to be with you guys and and to jump into this. Um, I'm probably the only person on this podcast who actually struggles with feeling overwhelmed by life, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> there are these personal reasons that I that I got into interested in this and some theological ones. Um, and m- maybe I'll mention some of the personal ones and then we can explore the theological if you're interested. Um, on the personal side, it's just such a common phenomena and has been through so much of my life to kind of get to a point in my day. And I often talk about laying my head on the pillow, but just this time where all of a sudden I'm done with the day and I feel this overwhelming sense of shame or guilt. And as a theologian, what's interested me through the the time is, you know, what is the cause of that? And having been raised Roman Catholic and then kind of becoming a, serious Jesus follower in high school in a kind of fundamentalist leaning Baptist setting and then being a reformed Presbyterian and doing a PhD on Puritans. I'm soaked in guilt, right? I get guilt and shame, right? <laughs> so I'm I'm interested in what 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 was going on there? Why do I feel guilty? And what's interesting is it wasn't often because I was thinking about a particular, like I was cruel to someone or I, I was greedy or, you know, those things I need to repent. But so often it was some form of this sense of 
why didn't you get more done today, Kelly? Why didn't you do more? And, um, and in the sober moments kind of going, is that right? Should I be thinking, should I, should I have gotten more done? Is that really always what I should think? So this book is, it, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say I've, I've been thinking about it for 20 years or so um, because of those life things. And then the other thing that just the short version is my wife, um, we got married in 1993. She got cancer in 2008, um, was declared cancer-free sometime after that. And then since 2010 to this day has dealt with chronic pain and fatigue every day. So for two people, we're both kind of I don't know if it's type A, but we like to get stuff done and productivity. And so this has been all about, whoa, cutting back, cutting back, cutting back. Um, so those are some of the personal sides. And we can talk about those or we can go in the theological direction if you want. Yeah, I think um, none of us can relate to the productivity curse. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's people who in their spare time do a podcast, they don't deal with this at all, right? <laughs> but it's a real bind, isn't it? I think that that something that I remember the first time I kind of reckoned with that association between productivity and worth was mm. in university when well, I developed a chronic illness in university. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first started to realize that I couldn't perform to the standard mm. that I, it was, it's fine until you, you can't, you can't meet the standard right. and then suddenly everything yeah. collapses. I'd be interested to know, like, what was the, how did you go about exploring that theologically? Yeah. And I I actually appreciate what you were just saying there, because it it reminds me, uh, there's this tension, right? So it is true that we don't, we should not get our worth from productivity and performance in these kind of ways. And, but I think part of what I'm also wrestling with is people say that all the time, like your identity is in Christ, your worth is in Christ. But honestly, that that's pretty dehumanizing in its own way too, strangely enough, even though there's theological truth to it, because like, no, God made us to work. Work is a good thing. So all of a sudden, when you start dealing with a new disability or a weakness, there's something to be mourned by that because you're made for good work, right? Um, And so I think part of what I'm interested in is not, I, because, you know, and I, since you and I have talked stuff in, in, in Sydney about some of this, like moving past the bumper sticker, cliche kind of answers to what does faithfulness look like in the midst of the seasons of life, our strengths and our weaknesses, our illnesses, um, and, and the cliches of don't find your identity or your worth in your work. Well, we spent a lot of time at work and God gave us good work. And I think that actually can be a problem. So I'm interested in limits, but I'm not interested in belittling good work. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I appreciate about the way that you, um, you, you spell that out in, in your book, you, you go to that place about how identity is actually complex. Surprise. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, one of the things that um, often people will say that we're well-intentioned, you know, your identity is not in, these things and that that for a lot of people including myself has been a really helpful sure ballast handhold mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. seasons where which could be really disorienting mm. um where the things that you had anchored your in- identity in probably in an unhealthy way sure. um, have been ripped out from under you it it is a helpful thing to to you know cast yourself on the lord mm. and um for him to be proven um dependable that is amazing what an experience um in terms of intimacy with with christ but in in your book you do you i appreciated the way that you you spell out yeah identities in christ but these other factors that shape our identities are are not trivial Um, we are we are shaped by our communities um and our dependence on other people uh, is a really important part of who who we are. I, as you were talking again, just a, a new kind of thought came to me. And I, and I do talk about this in the book, but as you were talking, I thought, oh yeah. So part of, I think the frustration I would have sometimes when people misuse identity in Christ in terms of like physical limits, especially if you're dealing with disability or illness or um, some of these things, is it can be, a, it, can, it can sneak in some form of Gnosticism. 
right? Because it's actually like your body doesn't matter. It's just your identity. And then all, again, there's lots of really important truth there. But I think one of the reasons that it strikes us and hurts us in the end is it's it's like immediate relief, but long-term pain. Because to get the immediate relief, I've had to dehumanize myself a little bit. As if God doesn't, doesn't, you know, God knows Kelly. He knows this body in this place from this family and this origin and this skin color and all that kind of stuff. We don't have to belittle or undermine those things to talk about identity in Christ. But for some reason, some of the way we do it often does kind of, I do wonder if it's, if, if it actually sometimes betrays, especially when we're talking about some of these physical things and undermining the significance of our bodies, which then makes things like lament very difficult. I think that's right. And I think that um, it doesn't, it doesn't like digest what that means. It doesn't help land. What, what does that mean for me trying to live as a disciple of Christ Mm. in my mundane everyday day-to-day life when, you know, in the case of your wife, Mm -hmm. you've got piercing chronic pain. What does, how does how does my relationship with Christ, how does my identity in Christ transform or impact upon or bear upon that experience? Mm. And it doesn't land it in a way that's actually helpful. I think they're right. I think it creates mm. this bifurcation in who we are, which can actually lead to like dissociation almost, I think. Yeah. I, I wonder if it if it actually goes further than uh not simply just not being helpful, but actually being harmful. Mm. Um, right, uh, the the lack of embodiment that is often given from a Gnostic perspective, and and you you touch on this in different points of of your book, where um, the lack of embodiment leads to almost a di- disembodied identity structure, um, mm. and that in in many ways is is reminiscent of a trauma pattern. Um, uh, of mm. uh, the dis- dissociation um, that is brought about by uh, s- traumatic events. And yet at the same time, and we've seen this more recently with the end of COVID, uh, many mm. uh, people in, in the church who are uh, simultaneously advocating this sort of disembodied identity, you, your body is less than you, uh, mm. are also simultaneously sort of pushing for a very embodied experience of the church. Everyone must return to church. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Everyone do not give up meeting together as some have been known mm. to do, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I think sometimes what we find in that tension is that there is actually a harm that comes there. Kelly, I was wondering if you can expand on that. Can you mm. um, take that initial two-part thrust? Where, where, do, yeah. where does that take us in terms of considering our limitations and, and our embodied existence yeah that's i mean I, I i really appreciate kind of the things you're wrestling with because i do think we're we're saying multiple messages right where hey you really need to be physically at the church you need to do these kind of things and then in other ways we're saying your body doesn't matter <laughs> and I, and i think we can feel some of those tensions um in terms of in terms of how it relates to limits um I mean, you ask most people, hey, do you have limits? You know, I use the word finitude a lot, which is just a fancy word for limits of space, time, knowledge, and power. And you explain that. You're like, do you think we're finite? We're like, yes. But when you, including as Christians, I think it's more like something we need to put up with. It's not actually a positive. And part of the fundamental argument I'm trying to make is that our our limits and our bodies are central to understanding our limits um because that's who we are our limits are part of the good of creation they're not part of the fall they the fall distorts the what comes out of that but the the limits are part of the good so the argument is that god made us to be in dependent on god dependent on neighbor dependent on the earth all of that dependence is part of the good of creation what sin does is distort all of those relationships and dependencies but dependence itself is a good thing so that when we, especially in the Western world, and my limited time in Australia says it's pretty similar there, right? As, as, as whether it's North America, Europe, uh, Australia, where if you even say in most Christian settings, the word dependent, right? If I say, well, 
you know, Steph and I are talking or Madison and I are talking about Chris and we're like, you know, Chris, that guy, he's just super dependent on other people. <laughs> we don't ever, it doesn't tend to be a compliment, right? It's like a negative. And yet if from the Christian imagination, if dependence on God, neighbor and earth is fundamental to spiritual formation, we're in a bind because we have viewed our limits and these dependencies as a problem to be solved rather than something that fosters shalom and communion. I find that that's just been such a refreshing point. Um, I've, mm. I've been reading You're Only Human very, very, very slowly over the past year because um, limits you. have come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Reality. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I think for me, one of the things that's really stood out is less thinking about in terms of physical limits. And it's exactly what you're getting at. There's the dependency, I think, in knowledge and understanding. And I think that's partially, I have a lot of students coming from ministry models where to admit you don't know something is yeah. to not be a good leader. Um, and and working that's that through scholars with them. like us, right? Oh, yeah, seriously. <laughs> working that through for myself and like being willing to say, I don't know, um I just uh, I mean it's taken me a while to get there and I think students sure. just are sort of surprised when they see you say that um so totally. yeah I think I think my question is um how how have you found trying to model limits with students with church members what um what have you done in your own practice yeah thank you that's that's a great uh question there are a couple of different answers I'd give, but one of, in, in some ways, none of it's rocket science. But for me, um, a simple, but I think pretty profound thing that's helped me and that I do try and encourage among others is just questions. Um, it's, a, you know, my wife and I will go out to dinner with, you know, some people, hopefully, you know, anyway, it could be all kinds of people. I don't, it's not just one. And you go to the, you ever go to dinner with people and then afterwards you talk and you're like, you know, we were there for two and a half hours and we asked questions all the time and nobody asked us a single question. And it's amazing how commonly that happens. And if you mention it to students and then all of a sudden they come back a week later and they're panicked because they realize just in the lunch hall, nobody's asking it. Everyone just has things they want to say. And if they're not being asked, it's it's quiet. There's not that interest. So for me, asking questions um, is a form of discipleship. It's a form of, you know, because we ask God questions. We ask each other questions. We're part of creativity and a right relationship to the earth is asking creation questions. Like, why is it this way? Uh, so curiosity and questions for me has been kind of a, non-threatening, very practical, but I actually think pretty transformative practice for spiritual formation in this stuff. Thank you so much, Kelly. I mean, I, I really love that. And I think that it's, that asking questions provides so much space because it's that kind of mutually beneficial thing where not only mm -hmm. are you caring for someone and asking, but, you know, inevitably, you know, that's an opportunity for you to learn. That's something that I've, I've been trying to understand better is, that mm. all of my relationships should have some kind of reciprocity in them, that mm. every person that I encounter, I should be thinking, how can I serve them and mm. how can I learn from them? And, mm. and so that kind of that two-sided thing. That's I great. also uh, developed a long-term health condition when I was mm. in undergrad and have, you know, been diagnosed with a, a number of things since mm. uh, picking up on Steph's story a little bit. And, um, so for a long time, physical limits were something that I was very in tune with. Mm -hmm. And, and I likewise was trying to have to understand, you know, how can I be a scholar if I can't stay up past 9 PM or yeah. how can I, you know, do this if, if I end up on the couch, you know, for a week afterwards or whatever, but, um, more recently, I find myself with more significant emotional limits. Mm. And um, mm. so, uh, you know, I'm in part just kind of teasing out that there's a lot of dimensions to this, but yeah. what, what has been really important for me to recognize is that these are so, these are so individually determined. So I mm. wonder if you could give us, I think this is a part of, of what you do in some of the, the latter parts of, or the last parts of your book, 
could you help us to understand, you know, how do we develop or how do we articulate our limits well and understand mm -hmm. what they are in ways that actually help us to still be uh, faithfully participating within community and serving mm -hmm. and um, and living into um, our identity with within those spaces and stuff. Thank you for sh for sharing a bit of your story. That's yeah, just thank you. That's that's significant. It's interesting. I think my experience, both personally and when I when I've asked others and listened to others on it, is one of the things I think is difficult is we're not very good at understanding our own limits and our own situations. So that um, you know, a silly, it's somewhat silly. It's significant in my life, but it might sound silly to others. But is if I've been working all day. There are times when my wife will look at me and, you know, it's evening or whatever, and I'm working on something. She says, what are you doing? You're done. Go watch ESPN, right? <laughs> Which is our sports show. And and that, for me, it's so powerful because even as silly as it sounds, if I look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, stop, be done for the day. I'm like, you're just lazy. What are you doing? Right? And I, I do think friendships and communities can see our because I totally agree with you. Everybody's story is different. And even the same particular person at different seasons, it's different. When you have little kids, it's different. If you're, if you're, you know, they're just different environments and situations. So I don't totally trust myself, not because sometimes I'm too soft on myself. Sometimes I'm too hard. So I do think that's part of it. When you have people who know you well and think, Madison here, you know, here are the realities of physically what's going on. You know, this is what it looks like. And you, and, and for me, that has given me courage uh, to accept certain things about myself. Um, so I, I, that may not be exactly where you were going, but the, for me, the community has been so often a key to that. You know, one of the things when people start hearing me talking about limits or start reading the book and at, at first it's great, but especially people like athletes or, you know, anyone who's excelled in their particular industry at first they're like, yes, I long for this. And then they kind of get mad and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> right? If, if limits are a good thing, I would have never been the athlete I am today. And they're right. So, so I'm not naive. You, part of the challenge is we have kinds of limits that we need to push beyond, right? Your, your muscles get, need to be stretched. You need to do practice. You need to put in your time. So I'm not against growth by any means. And the reason I'm saying all of that, it gets back to Madison's questions in term of, question in terms of, I think one of the ways to know as you're you know, trying to figure out, is this a limit I need to push beyond or is it one I need to live within is the question of shalom. How is my pushing here affecting these relationships and shalom? And if you find the pushing is undermining all of these relationships, God, neighbor, earth, then I think we have to ask some honest questions and it's probably time to slow down. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is really important to one, to be able to say, this is what I sense my limits are. And then mm. two, to have somebody or some bodies in your life to say, yeah, that seems right, you know, to mm. and to have that kind of honesty and stuff. Of course, this gets, you know, sort of back into questions of trauma and mm. more unhealth or unhealthier communities that we could be a part of mm. where, you know, we articulate our limits and then those are, are not respected, you know, boundaries that we set yeah. and things like that. So um, that's a super helpful and sobering comment and, and right. And I would like to hear what you guys have to say specifically on the trauma side, because I do think ill-formed or deformed communities do tend to foster deformation in us as individuals. And that goes back and forth. And when you started your last question talking about kind of the limits of our emotions, right? Uh, you know, working with college students, one of the things that's so amazing about a, 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 being a college professor is you get to expose students to all these things and they their heart starts to expand in justice issues and this and that and uh, the, the, a global perspective. And it's all really wonderful. But at some time, at some point, you all of a sudden you realize if you've done it for a while, like these students are now dying because they are trying to worry about the entire world in a way they're not fit to worry about it, right? And I do think part of our challenge as educators and 
pastorally is how do you cultivate compassion and empathy without crushing people in a way that their emotional integrity cannot handle and 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 that's very difficult for us in a day where the church is either we're appropriately like look at how much injustice we've ignored we need to do something and then others in reaction to that are like no that's all politics and you're like can we have a middle space where we genuinely lament and acknowledge and work but we also are recognizing we're still just human particular creatures and communities we can't do it all how do we do this faithfully without just all dying so i think that that's something that um in in the kind of um the justice uh, the philosophical justice world like martha nussbaum mm. and talks about well in terms of the moral obligation to the other um uh, she talks about in concentric circles um yeah of, that's right you know like so your immediate community versus the global community and part of the difficulty of the uh the, the of the age that we're in is that the impact of technology on compressing those mm. <laughs> concentric circles so we experience yeah. We often experience, I mean, right now we're talking with people that are not in our immediate community and <laughs> yeah. we do a lot of our life that way, mm. I think. I mean, most yeah. of my close friends live thousands of kilometres away mm -hmm. um, and that's a real challenge to how we day-to-day -day exercise that ethical kind of triage, I think, mm. you know. And I think as as you and Madison were just talking then, I was deeply resonating <laughs> with a lot of that emotional um, oversaturation almost. And there's like a spiritual overlay for me. I think that a lot of, and I know that a lot of my friends have experienced this and maybe a lot of you as well, um, particularly in my 20s, I think mm -hmm. I was trying to wrestle with this, um, you know, God is a God of self-giving love. Mm. I should be someone of yeah, right, absolutely. Yeah. hemorrhaging, <laughs> hemorrhaging yeah. energy time to others. Yeah. And there wasn't wasn't really a um an integrated way that I was doing that. I'd love to hear mm. um your thoughts on on how our, you know, if we are made in the image of a God who is who he is in self-giving community. Um, how does that shape the way that we we do that, given that we are finite? Yeah, it's good. Oh, there's so much in what you just said we could uh, explore because I loved it. I mean, I was even thinking about just, just let's see if I can work at the beginning and move to the end and, and remind me to get to that last question if I don't forget. Um, but you're absolutely right about this. I'm not anti-technology. We often use the word technology now. It's almost always digital is what we're actually talking about. But when you're talking about this compression, right? And I and I think about that because think about, um, there are New Testament scholars on this that, that can speak even more ably than I can on it. But the whole Jerusalem collection, which more and more scholarship says, the, this is actually a very significant part of Paul's whole vision and mission, far more than we realize. And it's, you know, um, kind of the poverty in Jerusalem and the, and the church, et cetera, which is very significant. So it really, and Paul ties concern for material poverty with the very death of Christ. So there is this theological, practical fusion. It's beautiful. It's part. And he doesn't he hesitate to talk about it, but think about that. There's still a distance and you're not getting images constantly. And it's not those images followed by 4,000 other images from other places, right? So this is not this is not an excuse for us not to care about a lot, but it is a recognition of we live in this dehumanizing speed that that is a problem. And again, like working with college students, one of the great temptations as a professor is you can get them fired up and they will like, I am going to go die for Jesus, right? And they're going to do it all. And then by about 28, they're just spent physically, emotionally. And um, I'm someone who both is involved in certain ways with my wife, um, 
we're we are bent towards the justice issues and material poverty issues and those kind of things. But I will tell you, having worked in myself and working in those spaces now for for many, many years, if we're honest, it's also I see a lot of self-righteousness. And I've come to think a lot of the self-righteousness that gets connected is actually sometimes it's almost a cry for help. It's like, I am exhausted. And if you guys would just do something. And so there, there's this, and I think that's a sign to us when the self-righteousness is veering its ugly head to go, we got to ask some honest questions about ourselves. And so then to get to your last questions about, you know, this God who's so self-giving, um, the, you know, there's a chapter in the book called, you know, do we need to be part of the church? And let's be honest. I mean, the church is not. <laughs> it's pretty hard to defend the church these days. You know, it's institutionally. We're like, I. It's not easy. It's not an easy sell, uh, especially, you know, we've already mentioned the word trauma injustice, all of these kind of things. And I am. Not oblivious to those things and have had to deal um, with them personally and beyond. But having said that. Researching this and thinking about your very question, I have to admit, I, I've become more um, grateful for the institutional church than ever, which I know is not a popular thing to say, but I've really come to believe, I'll just give you my, my conclusion and then we can talk more about it if you want, but I, it, it's been so liberating for me to come to believe it takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. It takes the entire church to be the one body of Christ. And so the example I think about is Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats and this judgment scene. And when you actually look at it, you know, it's in red letters <laughs> and, and Jesus is like, here's what separates. How do you care for, you know, the, the naked, the hungry, those in prison and the vast majority of Christians, we are not doing those things. And so we have these ways of writing it off. And uh, I, had, I had a minister some time ago. He, he called me, he's a former student of mine. He's a minister now and a uh, very tender heart. He's been poor. He pours himself into ministry, single guy. And he just said, I read Matthew 25 and I think, am I really a sheep? Because I don't visit the prisons and I don't, I don't have hardly any money. I don't have any more time. I don't do... And I think this is a great question. And the reason we don't ask that question is not because we tend to like, oh, chill out, Matthew. You're like overly sensitive. I'm like, no, he's actually reading the text. So, so how do you get through that? And the answer I basically gave him that I give myself, and then we can talk about it if you want, is, well, I actually, you know, this morning I prayed with a child at the hospital who's sick. And this morning I you know, helped people who are recovering from being sex trafficked. And I've also helped people who never heard the gospel in Nepal. And the list goes on. You're like, how did you do it? Well, because I'm connected to the church and I didn't personally do those things. But by God's spirit, I'm not just united to Christ. I'm united to his people. So if our churches, both locally and globally, don't do these things, we're in huge trouble. But the idea that I personally must do them all takes us into this messianic complex. So again, I just think it's been so liberating for me to go to, to realize it takes the whole church to be the one body of Christ. So what does my faithfulness look like? What am I called to so that the whole works well? Thanks, Kelly. Maybe um, if you could uh, expand on that and maybe take it towards uh, what we we're talking about a bit earlier in terms of identity. Um, mm -hmm. So often identity is defined as personal and individual, um, mm. but it is intrinsically social and relational. You know, full disclosure, I'm a social yeah. identity uh, researcher myself. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, in terms of then uh, how that works in, in, um, in, bringing the social identity of the church back mm. to, to the individuals. Um, I, so I'm, I'm also thinking of the the many clergy who uh, then see that uh, themselves as the the locus or the the, the focal point of right. um, of building that identity or, or or mediating it for the church. There's that um, 
infamous, famous, infamous, I'm not sure which, uh, <laughs> quote from um, Robert Murray M. Chain uh, that uh, I have been given a message to deliver in a horse to ride, but alas, I have killed the horse and now I can no mm. longer deliver the message uh, as he lay on his deathbed in his 20s. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, at the, we have this situation where I think 40-odd percent of clergy are considering quitting um, yeah. ahead of retirement um in tw- from 2022 how do we how do we work in in terms of that social identity where it is it doesn't just then flip over into okay as an individual uh i am part of the church therefore that outsources the work of the church to others ah, uh, yeah. and 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 usually that becomes outsourcing the work of the church to the the clergy um mm-hmm. or those who are employed to do so um, what's where's that tension lie for 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 people? Uh, yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Chris. Um, again, so much there. Um, for me, some of the most meaningful conversations since the book has come out have been with clergy and speaking to clergy groups because, as you've said, there's just so much exhaustion and pain, and and COVID has amplified it. And in America, um. I don't know how to say, you know, politics, Trump, <laughs> the last six years have just been absolutely uh, brutal, um, particularly anyone on kind of the evangelical, but beyond even the evangelical world, it's just, they're just worn out. And um, I, anyways, I could tell a lot of stories uh, that I've heard that have been very meaningful to me. And, and a lot of them, as you know, you all, I'm sure could give plenty of examples where basically in private, they'll tell you if I could do anything else, I would. Um, so I, I do think, I do think that's, um, part of it and the McChaney story, which does get repeated a lot. Um, those things now scare me to death. Uh, you know, I was, I was talking to a, a pastor from the Midwest and he, some time ago, and he was just like, yeah, in our twenties, we were all sitting around, there were four of us, four, four or five of us. And we were in college and we're like, here's how we can get by on four hours of sleep a night. So we can give 20 hours a day to Jesus. Right. And it sounded great. And it sounded, and this guy was telling me the story in his late thirties. And, and he said, I, his, his wording was, I was, you know, I was held up his fingers, but I was like an inch away from being um, put into a mental institution. And as he said, I, I probably should have been, I almost lost my family, my, my ministry, lost everything, right. Physically, emotionally. And, and it, and it, and it's kind of like, even though he, he laughed about the story and didn't say like, that's what he ended up doing that kind of spirit, right. Um, is the killer. Uh, and I even think about, um, I was just thinking about that, the, this week where you have that whole episode with Jesus and Peter and Jesus is going to go to his, his friend Lazarus's grave, or going to go to Lazarus and that that is a great risk and peter's like let's do this thing and he you know he's he's ready to grab the sword and and do it and and what ends up happening with that long story short is peter's got all of this zeal and the story ends basically with jesus washing people's feet and then you have peter not too long later denies him and I do think there's this heroic, brave heart, let's do this thing, not realizing so much of ministry is pretty mundane and slow and sacrificial. So you have, you have that side. Um, but then seeing I, part of that is that people are putting too much on the pastors. Part of it is messianic complex. Um, and then part of it is how, how does the church and, and maybe it would go back to your I'd, I'd like to talk more and hear more on your your thoughts on the social identity, because I do think socially. I do think identity is it's both internal, but way more external, as you know, than other than people tend to recognize. Um, so l- let me just give you this example and then and then see if you want to follow up on it. I think when we say to people. um. Other people, this is why we should have diversity. This is why we should have difference. Other people really help us see our blind spots. I think that's absolutely true. It's one of the great theological and existential arguments for diversity. But I actually also think it's true that other people, especially with difference, help us see our gifts. 
In other words, they help us see the good and not just the bad. And so part of what you're talking about, Chris, is like, how, how does the church functioning well help it not just make sure it doesn't have so many blind spots, but also help people better recognize their gifts that they might cultivate and develop them and use them for the good of, of the Christ's kingdom and for his world. And so I think there's a positive side as well. It's not just like nagging at people. It's like, no, look at what we see. Let's, let's see you develop this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think from a, a social identity perspective, I mean, all, all of how we define ourselves uh, in terms of even, even internal definition is externally re- referenced. Yeah, totally. Uh, we yeah. still, uh, all of our cognition is social cognition in terms of mm-hmm. how we engage in, in that space. And so it, it absolutely makes sense that, that we see both the, the good and the bad uh, in mm-hmm. reflection from others. Mm-hmm. Um and and I think that's that's often the the challenge in the church is that we're encouraging people to see the good and the bad, uh, mm. and yet uh, it also opportun- that by encouraging people to see the good and the bad, it opens up avenues for leveraging of both good and bad. Um, and yeah, so- now, Chris, think about help me with this, <clears throat> and then I, I'd be curious what others think too because it's almost a hermeneutical question. Because as you know, part of our, ch- I, 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 I actually do agree that these are, these are kind of, these are relational realities, right? So uh, one of my sociologist friends here at Covenant, first day of class, he'll have students come in and say, introduce yourself, but you can't reference anyone else, you know, and, and they can't do it. But as soon as they can reference people outside of themselves, they, they can say all kinds of things about themselves. But in light of, I like what you're saying, the church is where we both learn some good and some bad. We get confronted with that. And the church helps us see who we are. As the church is this community that cast its gaze upon Christ. And he is that then mirror who speaks back against us, both words of grace and comfort and words, prophetic words of warning or whatever. How do we hear Christ and not just project ourselves onto him? Right. So in this kind of politicized and we don't have to go way down this road, but it is part of the part of the reality of finitude is recognizing, oh, I really do come from this culture and this political climate and this kind of thing. And I'm having Jesus represent things that maybe don't really represent who he is. But when we're the ones doing it and our communities are doing it, how do we break out of that? Right. It's kind of the classic hermeneutical struggle there. Absolutely. And I think this is one of those areas where uh, we in the West are very often a bit more deprived um, in that we tend to separate out our relationships a lot. Um, mm. So we have a relationship, um, you know, I, I'm friends with Madison, I'm friends with Sydney, I'm friends with Steph, but because of the geography, I've often seen them in separate places. And and mm. the temptation is to to stratify those relationships as they are separated items, rather than uh, all all three of us and four of us really um, the th- um, being in relationship together. Mm. And I think this is one of the areas where uh, the same thing happens with our um, with our the vertical aspect of our of our human relationships with with the Father and with with the Son through the Spirit um, is that we end up with um, an individualization of those relationships. So just like your students or your mm. colleague students coming into class and not being able to describe themselves in terms of um, who they are without referring to another, it's mm. once they are allowed to refer to another, it's their relationship with that other, not necessarily they're describing themselves in relationship to how someone else might relate to that same mm. other. Uh, but um, yeah. I mean, the end of John 17, the, the high priestly prayer, mm. it isn't that, you know, father, my prayer is not for him alone that I pray that those who believe in him through my message, that all of um, all of them may be one in relationship with me, not relationship with each other, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. You know, it, it's it's talking about this sort of perichoretic uh, relationship uh, and mm. dare I say it, it tends towards uh, the social in both a horizontal and a vertical sense. Um, even mm. intra-trinitarian sociality, um, if if we can use that language, um, 
I realize I'm speaking to a theologian there. <laughs> I, I think that's where it actually does mm. help us being part of recognizing we are part of this universal body, uh, where yeah. the insight and the 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 gifting, uh, we might say, the mm. um, of the church more broadly than our own local context actually gives us great uh, insight into how we uh, relate and and indeed sometimes the blind spots of yeah. uh, of our churches. Sydney, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but <laughs> now you just so you know, be ready, right? But I am, as he was talking, about, it made me think, you know, your work in Thessalonians and thinking about how does kind of this future expectation, how would that fit into this, right? In terms of we talk about our communities and trying to have a more communal model, but also how does our finitude and particularity now. How does that future shape the present? Even when Chris is doing the high priestly prayer thing, it is this prayer of unity and oneness. So anyways, I was just curious if you wanted to say anything kind of future oriented in terms of shaping us. I, I think some of what I'm trying to do right now is I did a very, very historical critical um, mm. thesis and then thinking through actually the practical outworkings of that and and mm. relating that to the church is something I've been wanting to spend a lot more time on. Um, mm. I think the takeaways for me right now about the future promises, um, I've been teaching a lot of Hebrews lately, so this, this may be pulling on that. Um, <laughs> but the, the vision that helps you persevere um, and and um, just, just thinking about what actually helps us to be in community and to, to be seeking beyond our own understanding and questioning and willingness to do that I think if you if you have the vision of full unity like thinking of first Thessalonians 4 um, and 5 talking about our our goal is to be united with him forever mm -hmm. and and that's a beautiful thing then I think trying to work towards that together um in community now is is taking those steps towards that so in some ways and this is kind of Madison and, and Sydney on this, because for me, we didn't end up talking about, you know, the theo I gave you some of the personal, but for me, one of the biggest things driving this study theologically was for the last 25 years, kind of post-seminary, beginning in seminary, but really post-seminary, just falling in love with the, the gift of the humanity of Christ and shaping my whole doctrine of creation and its goodness. And so I think about, you know, we've got an expert here on on uh, Hebrews and the humanity of Christ in Hebrews. And then even as Sydney's talking about the return of Christ, but in this part of this is, is, you know, the Orthodox classic tradition is like he is returning, not just as a vague spirit or something like that, that the continuing humanity of Christ remains significant. So I was just curious if either of you wanted to talk more on on the humanity of Christ, both first century and ongoing. So when I was working, there's a little bit of anecdote, so I hope it's not too much. But when I was in my PhD, I had a big flare up of a lot of my health concerns. Mm. And so it was like 2015, like lived on the couch, basically, mm. while writing a thesis and all of that. Like when I think back to what I accomplished in 2015 and like, by God's grace, what in the world? Wow. But yeah. it felt like I was on the couch the whole time. Mm. Um, but it was during that time that I was working on like Hebrews 2 and mm. that, was that chapter about the humanity quite a bit and also you know began to be asked more and more you know why do you work on hebrews mm -hmm. and it was funny to me to think back that i had come to it because i felt like it provided me with answers about jesus and scripture um mm. that i needed at that time yeah but what i was realizing is that when i was in like new testament seminar and when i was in church i was hearing these sermons on paul forgive me sydney and they were all kind of Paul's like, it's going to get better. Like eventually this is going to be okay. Right. Like, you know, that kind of thing. 
And Hebrews had a really different picture. Mm. It was Jesus has done this, you know, Jesus has been tested in every way, experienced all that it means to be human and recognizing that I, I found that to be such you know, just a much more compelling vision of Christology, mm-hmm. or at least one that I resonated with. I don't, I mean, yeah. I don't mean to disparage Paul ultimately, but um, so I, you know, it, I think that if I can think about God's goodness to me, that mm-hmm. I'm in Hebrews because of the humanity of Christ mm-hmm. in Hebrews and the way that it's resonated with me. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I can say more, but, but I, I hope that kind of gives like a broad picture of, of what I think the author's theology is and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so great for me. It was uh, uh, similar in terms of, and interestingly enough for me, Mary's importance became significant in some of those ways um, to fully appreciate the full humanity of Jesus. And um, yeah, that earthiness was the path for me to finally having a good, robust doctrine of creation. It was actually through Christ and Mary to to the doctrine of creation that opened up in in really rich and helpful ways. And um, and I. I work in primarily American evangelical circles um, and and, and others, but that's a significant space. And I just, uh, people are probably going to get tired of me saying it, but I just don't think we have a doctrine of creation (laughs) Um, eh, because it gets reduced to when did God make the earth or how did God make the earth? And this is just, we can see the effects of decades of this in our um, dehumanizing ways of making sense of the world. And I do think, as Madison was talking about, gazing upon Jesus and his his true earthy reality, the sympathetic high priest who becomes perfect through suffering, try and figure that one out, right? Um, for me, that's just been a path of life. That's been, it actually helps me see the gospel. Um, and yeah, the last thing I would say on that that I guess is related is um, I think it was N.T. Wright. I, I know it was N.T. Wright years ago, but he said, you know, Protestants were great at giving the answer. Why did Jesus die? But had a very lame answer for why did Jesus live? And for me, that's been huge. And this is part of my great appreciation of the Eastern Orthodox tradition and others. Because, And I do think at their best, Calvin actually had a strong answer. John Owen had a strong answer, but it gets lost. And for me, that has just really captured me as, as why did he live? And, and that's based on creation and all that to say, that's why we're talking about finitude. God, God likes what he made. He's not embarrassed by it. He just doesn't like the sin that's distorting it. So he enters in becoming fully human. So. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, finitude is a part of the creation as well. And yeah. our exploitation and destruction of the mm. earth is, is a lack of rec- recognition of the limits that the earth has. Mm. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about the law is that mm. it's not just about putting in place these kind of guards for our, our human finitude, but in the ways that you're supposed to harvest and plant and all of that, there's a recognition of the finitude or limits of, of creation itself. And so yeah. a lot of oh, that's great. related problems, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Kelly. Kelly, I know that we've had this conversation before, but I'd like to explore with you more about um, where the threshold is between limits as a good given part of the created order and the way we often experience those limits as distorted by um, things that aren't good. Mm. Um, So often our experience, um, you mentioned before, um, you know, your wife has a Mm. chronic illness, you know, being affected by disease. So often the, the context in which we're grappling with our limits they're in they're not in it's very hard to think of those things as good things Mm. um could you we're we're about to start a series on disability um Mm. which is fraught because there's all these conversations around well is disability just a product of the fall be very careful tread carefully there yeah i mean i think that that there's a whole spectrum on on that and so i can't obviously you can't give a comprehensive answer but in terms of what like those those kinds of threshold questions of well 
in our in our day-to-day lived experience when we're when we're trying to live faithfully um, within the the given limits of our bodies mm. of our um, relational contexts um how do we navigate what are some handholds that we can use to navigate that threshold between limits as a good thing and limits as a f- product of frustration and the brokenness of the world yeah that's a really thoughtful uh question and and it is hard and without as you say uh, <laughs> let's avoid the landmines and I think you're interviewing Swinton soon, so you can just pester him with all of those really hard questions. <laughs> um, you know, when it was working on the book Embodied Hope, which is really about suffering um, and a theological reflection on pain and suffering, it was through reading people like Swinton and Brian Brock, who's a friend, and others uh, that kind of did um, make me think afresh about these things. And I would say there is a chastening to go and it relates to the finitude conversation. I think I was guilty of at times confusing difference with sin, right? And so di- different mental cognitive abilities, different kinds of things. We've got to be careful, right? Uh, when someone has dyslexia and dysgraphia, um, and so they struggle with reading and writing right now, we're like, well, is that a disability? Well, in our cultural context, that is a different way the brain is functioning that makes this kind of functioning in our society work, make it makes it makes schooling very, very difficult. But through most of the history of the world and through much of the world to this day, that person's brain actually tends to function super well in these other, you know, and even in even in this culture. Anyways, it's just is that a part of the fall or is it just a difference? But within our social structures, it makes living right now very difficult in some of these societies. So all that to say, that's a lot of words to just say, yes, we've got to be careful. Difference is not necessarily sin or the fall. Um, For me, one of the most helpful guardrails um, has been rethinking the idea of humility. Um, And so we all know we're supposed to be humble, but I do find if you ask most Christians, if you don't prepare them at all and just say, hey, why should we be humble? The answer is some version of, well, because we're sinners. And clearly I think we're sinners. Um, but I don't think that, I, I, what I, th- I do think in the history of theology, a lot of damage has been done when the idea of humility has been built on the foundation of sin. But when you build it on the foundation of the goodness of creation, humility actually looks quite different. So part of the argument is, should were Adam and Eve, were they meant to be, before the fall in the Genesis narrative, were they meant to be humble or not? And when you think about it, you're like, no, they're meant to be humble. Because humility is this expression of one's acknowledging delightful dependence on God, dependence on your neighbor, and dependence on the earth. That's part of the good of creation. Well, if that so that part of my argument then is humility isn't just saying I'm sorry, but a Christian view of humility also says, I don't know. Can you help me? And that doesn't even have to be related to sin. It's just I need help. I don't know everything. I can't be everywhere. Um, and for me, that's very liberating and it even helps people because I, I did, we almost get this idea, either you're humble or you're not, either you got the gene or you don't <laughs> and you're like, no, no, we can cultivate humility. But when we built it on sin, the way it gets cultivated is through self-hatred. You're just focusing on what a bad sinner you are and how bad, but if it's based on the goodness of creation, then you can cultivate humility by cultivating an awareness of your dependence on God of your dependence on others and dependence on the earth. And that looks like things like gratitude. Expressions of gratitude are very practical. Positive psychology has done all this really interesting work on it, but it's a biblical idea. There are, there are goods that come from cultivating expressions and attitudes and orientations of gratitude. Um, so anyways, I do think there are things we could do. Humility would be what I would think of as a healthy path forward that we could follow. Yeah, and I, I did I really love that that um that section of your book where you mm. um where you just point that out. Um and I I it resonated with my the kind of ecosystem that I grew up in mm. in terms Thanks. of humility because you're 
you're a sinner. Whereas mm. when you reframe it and like, yes, of course, but just reframing that according to the relational context of this relationship with the creator, the creator and the mm. created. Um, and that that can be totally transformative. And I know that that's where you you land in, in your book um, mm. in, in terms of giving um, like embedding it in the in the day-to-day experience of well, what is your what are your rhythms of life look like? Um, and and kind of breaking down those abstract ideas into well when I'm when I'm living in my day-to-day, what does that look like? Can you just um, as as we wrap up, could could you just unpack those those various handholds that you've you've stepped out in that last chapter of your book? Yeah, I mean in in the last chapter, I do give some <laughs> some practical kind of um, ways that I think we can help cultivate a healthy view of finitude or a, just a healthy way of being human or, or a different way of saying it is here are some practices that can help us embrace our humanity. Um, one of those is rhythm. Uh, I've really, when we come up with black and white statements or this is what a Christian life looks like, I, I do think we hurt people, right? So, uh, I talk with a lot of like um, young parents, particularly, you know, a stay at home parent who's dealing with young, multiple children or at least one child at home. And they, they had been doing all of these things, maybe involved in the church and all these other, and now all of a sudden their life has gotten very small and they're exhausted and they feel guilty. But the reality is what, what spirituality and faithfulness looks like for someone with a newborn versus an empty nester couple, if we can't recognize that difference, we're hurting ourselves, right? Um, and so part of it is learning different rhythms. I think there are even different day. I to, to Part of my struggle on a practical level is I'll come in and right now it's Monday and I do a to-do list for my Monday. And the reality is my Monday to-do list is not a Monday to-do list. It is it is at least a week worth of work. And so I'm destined on Monday night to just feel like, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything. Because I, I didn't understand the rhythm of a week. So I do think there are rhythms of life, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, and because of certain technological advances, that's difficult for us. Where, you know, Old Testament, throughout much of the history of the world, you have harvest time and you work very long hours and then you don't. But now our problem is what used to be seasonal is now expectation of a lifestyle and, and we're crumbling on, under it. So we could say more on that, but I, I, I'd say rhythm is a big part. Vulnerability is another. Um, cultivating vulnerability is quite significant. And um, I think there's a reason why Brene Brown's TED talk on vulnerability is last I checked, it was over 50 million hits. Right. Um, and I do, I tell them that you may remember, and I tell in the book and it was very powerful to me. She has, it's not written. She has an audio book on men and women and vulnerability. And she tells this amazing story. And, and so I want to repeat it here real fast for your listeners, just because I think it's so significant, but she talks about, she was at a book signing for this book on vulnerability and up comes and is a long line and up comes this um this woman with four books to sign and her daughters and her husband and she starts signing them and the husband says oh i i really like your book this i really love your ideas here and she's like thank you and he said i just find it interesting that you never talk about men and she says well i don't study men she said i i was glad i, I had an excuse i don't study men i study women she he said well that that's convenient because when when those of us men try this we get the crap beat out of us. He used a stronger word than that, right? And and then he, there was a pause. And, and then he said, before you start to tell me about mean coaches and unrealistic expectations from fathers, I just want you to know the the my wife and those three girls who just walked away, they would rather have me, you know, what did he say? Die than fall off this white horse. Right. And, and anyways, this idea of, I didn't tell the story very well, but this sense that there is a greater openness to men being vulnerable, but it's, it's still an issue. And I think it's just a human issue. So um, what does vulnerability in the church look like? 
that relates to our finitude because it starts to talk about our weaknesses and our limits. Um, in terms of gratitude, I, which I've talked about, I, I do think cultivating this sense of gratitude, looking for, I think lament is so significant and gratitude. They're both ways of, of learning to recognize we don't control the world. And, and so we need to lament at the, at the hurt, but also recognize the gifts because we didn't generate it all. Um, obviously more to say on that. And then the final is rest, cultivating rest. Um, it was fun to write about a theology of sleep in there and this idea that we can sleep because God doesn't. And for me, I, I turned 50 this year and uh, 3 a.m. is unfortunately a very common time to wake up and struggle. So um, yeah, sleep is interesting, but also just a one in seven Sabbath rest has been significant. So there'd be a lot to say on rest, but those give you some hints. Kelly, I've benefited so much from your work on this mm. in this space, and I we're really grateful that um, our listeners can also get some of the good stuff. So, thank you so much for joining us on the Two Cities. You got it. Thank, thank, you, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it.